I invite you this morning to bow your head and close your eyes and to stay for a moment right where we were in that song, meditating on the goodness of the Lord. The Bible says his goodness endures forever. It means there's never going to be an end to his goodness. And he's not just good in some abstract way, some general way. He is good to us in particular. And so what I want to invite you to do this morning, with your heads bowed, your eyes closed, whether you're online or here in the room, is to call to mind some specific way that God has been good to you. could be something physical, like the restoration of health. could be something financial or career-related. could be something relational or emotional. Well, you just sort of bring that thing into focus, sort of meditate on it. Take note of how it makes you feel. Think about what thoughts it provokes. I want you to take that goodness of the Lord to you, and I want you to, as it were, put it into a, a bubble, sort of enclose it in a plastic bubble. Get it and get it in your right hand. Maybe take that goodness of the Lord in your right hand and put it in your put it in your pocket. Hold on to it. Keep it. And in your left hand now, I want you to sort of open your left hand mentally or even physically. And I want you to think there about somebody who needs to know the goodness of the Lord. Maybe there's somebody in your family or somebody in your workplace or in your neighborhood where they live down the hall from you or across the street from you. But they're struggling with the idea that God is good. And they're struggling to see how God's goodness comes to them particularly. Maybe you've listened to them talk about their struggles. Maybe you've tried to even offer a word of encouragement, but still, they struggle with the goodness of the Lord. Maybe you're holding yourself in that hand. You're holding someone else. And and rather this morning than to encase them in a bubble, what I want to invite us to do is to just lift them higher toward God. Hold them up to the Lord and to, on their behalf, ask the Lord to show them his goodness in the way that they need. To remember them come near to them. 
Bible says that the Lord is near the brokenhearted, the crushed in spirit. And though God's goodness is as bright as the noonday sun, they can't see it. So ask God to open their eyes to behold his glory. While you have them lifted there, I want you to imagine yourself putting them into God's hands. You can lower your hands. They are safely in the Lord's hands. These are hands that no man can snatch them out of. Just entrust them to the Father. Trust them to God. And ask the Lord to keep them as only he can. Hold on to God's goodness for yourself. Call for God's goodness for others. He is a good, good father. And he loves us. Father, we just commit ourselves to you and commit those to you who are struggling to know your goodness. Give to each precisely what is needed, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. something fundamentally unserious about balloons on a pulpit. So it goes over there. <laughs> Before we turn to God's word this morning, I, I do want to say something pastorally very briefly. Um, this past week, Christy and I had the privilege of being on a pastor's and wives retreat in Hilton Head, South Carolina. It's a wonderful time of refreshing with about 85 other uh, couples from around the country, pastors and their wives, uh, praying together, singing together, uh, digging into God's word together and, and retreating. And um, among the many things that happened over this past week, um, two things that kind of broke into that retreat time for me was uh, news of the shooting in Koreatown in Dallas, where uh, a man went into a nail salon and opened fire and uh, wounded three Asian-American women, three Korean women uh, there, and news of um, the shooting in Buffalo. A man went to a grocery store and opened fire and killed 10 and wounded a couple of others. And maybe these are the kinds of situations where we most need God's goodness to shine through. These are dark things. On one level, they seem quite random. The guy walks into a nail salon, just opens fire, no provocation, no reason. The guy walks into a grocery store, opens fire. It's not his neighborhood, he's not from there, no provocation, no reason, except for what they have in common. The profound and ugly outworking of sin. We live in a sinful, broken, fallen world, and just one expression of that sinfulness is, is racism, is ethnic hatred. Is violence and murder, is the belief in conspiracy theory and ideologies that have become so commonplace as to be mainstream on mainstream media. It's the pastor's job not to be political. And I don't, I don't take what I'm saying now to be political. I take it to be pastoral. It's the pastor's job to speak into the thoughts and the hearts of his people um, especially in matters that are as gross and significant as this. 
And I just want to say two things real briefly before we come to our sermon for this morning. One is that um, I don't want us as a people to become hopeless and despairing in the face of these things. I don't think God wants us to become hopeless and despairing. In fact, I'm quite sure of that, for in Luke 18, the Lord tells a story about a widow needing justice. No one to sort of argue her case for her, and she keeps going to this judge, demanding and asking for justice. Now, Jesus tells that story. It starts out by his telling his people, it's a story about how they ought to pray. It's a lesson on prayer. But when you come to the end of that story in Luke chapter 18, the punchline that Jesus gives is not a punchline about prayer, but a punchline about justice. He says, will not God give justice to his elect? Now, in the popular culture, you're going to hear people say they're so tired of hearing the phrase thoughts and prayers, thoughts and prayers. And, and that can be performative. People are going to say thoughts and prayers and have never prayed and never given much thought to things. But let that not be us, beloved. Let us be people of prayer. For this I know, James tells us, I think it is, that the fervent prayer of the righteous availeth much, has much power. And so if we would want to see justice in these situations and justice in our country, if we would want to see the gospel's power to overcome sin, we ought to be praying, people fervently praying. We don't live in Dallas. We don't live in Buffalo, but we can't afford to be unmoved by those events. We've got to be praying people. Here's the other thing that came to mind as I was thinking about this, that I pray that the Lord would shape our minds and hearts with is Acts 17, 26. Acts 17, 26 is a text of scripture that has long been formative and motivational in the African-American sojourn for equality and freedom and understanding. It says basically that God has made all the peoples of the earth from one pair, from one man. That we are all children of Adam and Eve. And that God has determined the places where we should live and the reason he's done that, so that we might come close to the gospel. So we, we want to recognize in those who have fallen or been shot, Korean women in Dallas, the African-American and the couple of, of white uh, persons in Buffalo, we want to recognize ourselves in them. We're descended from the same parents, Adam and Eve. And we want to pray for them and enter into that and, and, and suffer in prayer for them. If we don't, and I'm almost finished, if, if we as God's people don't suffer in empathy with those who are suffering, what hope is there for compassion in this world? So let us be a feeling, empathetic people who pray to God for justice in these situations. Now, I realize that uh, some of you may not have thought much about this or would like to think more about this, so um, I came with books. Three giveaways. Shailene's new book, The New Reformation, Finding Hope in the Fight of ethnic unity. Is there a taker? Anybody want this? Come on, LaVon. Saw you. Saw your hand first. Be quick, brother. I know you're cool and smooth, but be quick. All right. Another book written by uh, two brothers, white brother, black brother, Reggie Dabbs, and John Driver, 
called Not So Black and White, an invitation to honest conversations about race and faith. Anybody want to have this model? Come on, Dietrich. There you go. Run like you play for the Milwaukee Bucks, brother. <laughs> Some of Giannis, a long Euro step. All right. And then finally, maybe something for the young people among us, because, beloved, we're trying to leave. If Jesus doesn't come soon, we're trying to leave them a better world than the one we found. Right? And we tried to make yet more progress on these issues. It's Jamar Tisby's book uh, for young readers called How to Fight Racism. Uh, a guide for standing up for racial justice. And so is there maybe a young reader or someone with a young reader uh, that might wish to read Jamar's book together? Is there anybody? Hey, I see your hand back there, sweetie. Come on. Y'all encourage it with a hand clap of praise. Amen. There you go, sweetie. You're welcome. Excellent. All right. Then a book that we'll give all of y'all is the Holy Bible. If you need a Bible this morning... If you need a Bible, this is the best book I know. If you need a Bible this morning, raise your hands. We have some ushers um, that are going to sort of pass these out. Just keep them high. Uh, they'll, bring you, they'll bring you a Bible. Now, if you don't own a Bible, this is our gift to you. We, we want you to have a Bible, have it in your home, and more than that, to have it in your hearts. We believe that this is God's Word, that God speaks uh, in this book, and that His wisdom for us is in the pages of this book and that his spirit will give us understanding of this book uh, as we prayerfully ask him for it. And so um, this is what we build our lives on as a church. This is what we build our lives on as individual Christians. And uh, I would like to think that we would, if it was God's will, uh, be like those martyrs who gave their lives for this book. We believe in it that much. And so uh, we're going to be, if you're using this Bible, we're going to be on page 968. We're going to be in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. Uh, let me offer a word of prayer as you guys turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 9. Father, indeed, we do believe, believe that you are good in all of your ways. There's nothing about you that's not good. There's nothing that you do that's not good. Lord, we praise you for you are perfect. And we pray, O oh Lord, that in this imperfect world, full of brokenness, full of sin, full of injustice, full of lovelessness and carelessness and evil. We pray that your good would break through like light into the darkness. Your goodness, O oh Lord, particularly in the, in the face of your Son and in the sacrifice of the cross and in the hope of the resurrection, that your goodness, O oh Lord, would break into every heart. Lord, we pray that you would be with those affected by these two recent shootings. We pray that you would comfort the families, that you would heal those who were wounded. And Lord, we pray that you would be near the grieving. We pray, O oh Lord, that you would put an end to the recklessness that we see so often, not just in the shooting, but in the many wretched ideas that led up to the shooting. We, we know that we wrestle not with flesh and blood, but with principalities and ideas wrestle against spiritual wickedness in high places. And the prince of the power of this world, of this, of this age, is blinding men, blinding people in unbelief and seizing upon fear and resentment and every kind of vice in order to plunge this world deeper into darkness. But you have a kingdom of light. We pray, let your light shine. 
let it break through. Let it break through even now in the hearing of your word. As you address us from your word, speak to every heart. Give light and life and hope and joy as we believe. We ask this, O Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you're in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, say amen. Amen. Well, beloved, we are continuing this morning our study through our church covenant. We are taking 2022 uh, to sort of, in a sense, relaunch the church, to go back to basics, to go back to our core commitments as a church, and to remind ourselves of some things that actually define our relationship to each other. This is what we mean by covenant commitment. Covenant's another word for relationship. And you know what commitment means. It means that we are dedicated to the things that are in this covenant. You'll find it, I think, in your bulletins um, somewhere around page 10 or 11 or 12. Uh, We're going to be um, two paragraphs, three paragraphs from the bottom. That paragraph that says this, we will contribute cheerfully, generously, and regularly to the support of the ministry, the expenses of the church, the relief of the poor, and the spread of the gospel through all nations. That's part of why we exist as a community, as a church, to to contribute cheerfully to the things that are listed here. Now, if we were just sort of breaking this statement apart, um, brother, there are a couple up here if you want to come up here. If we were just breaking this statement apart, we we might notice three things about this statement, and then I'm going to chase these things down in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. Number one, that the covenant specifies the actions that we agree agree to take. Notice there, we will contribute. That's the action in this paragraph. But not only does it specify the action, notice how it describes the heart that goes with this action. You see it there? Cheerfully, generously, and regularly. And then it also tells us what the goal is, why why we're taking this action. So we're going to contribute cheerfully, generously, and regularly. Why? Several things. To, To the support of the ministry, the expenses of the church, the relief of the poor, and the spread of the gospel through all nations. So when we give, we should have some vision for our giving impacting our church, supporting the expenses of this church, supporting the work of the ministry, as we thought about last week, but then moving out toward others, the the poor, specifically named here, whether they are members of this church or members of our community, right? This is why we have a benevolence ministry, for example. And then moving out, not just to the poor financially, but the poor spiritually, those who don't yet know Jesus, who don't yet know the gospel, right? We want to see this action, this simple action of contributing work its way from inside of our membership all the way to the nations in the spread of the gospel, in the relief of the poor, in the meeting of our needs. Hey, family, about, about three seats up here if you want to come up here. Very well from the front. So that's what I want us to talk about is this statement, but I want us to chase it down from 2 Corinthians chapter 9, particularly verses 6 to 15. If you're taking notes this morning, I want to sort of give us four observations here. I want us to note, number one, two principles, two principles of stewardship. Number two, I want us to notice two kinds of people, two kinds of people when it comes to stewardship. Number three, I want us to see the two payoffs, the two payoffs, the two outcomes or results um, that, that attach to these people 
And then finally, I want to give us some practical things for how to put this into action. Okay? 2 Corinthians chapter 9, look with me beginning in verse 6. Actually, let's read the whole chapter. Let's start in verse 1. Now, it is superfluous for me to write to you about the ministry for the saints. For I know your readiness of which I boast about you to the people of Macedonia, saying that Achaia has been ready since last year, and your zeal has stirred up most of them. But I'm sending the brothers so that our boasting about you may not prove empty in this matter, so that you may be ready as I said you would be. Otherwise, if some Macedonians come with me and find that you are not ready, we will be humiliated to say nothing of you for being so confident. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and arrange in advance for the gift you have promised so that it may be ready as a willing gift, not as an exaction. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he is distributed freely, he is given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others. While they long for you and pray for you, because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. I also notice two principles here uh, in this text. Let me give you the background uh, for this letter. The Apostle Paul, of course, is writing to this church in Corinth. In this section of the letter, chapter 9, you'll see he's writing to them about an offering that he's going to collect when he comes. That offering is meant to be uh, used to relieve the church in Jerusalem because of a famine that struck Jerusalem. Now, they had made a prior commitment to give, and Paul had been boasting about them, about how generous they are. And so now Paul's like, wait a minute, I didn't put them people out there, said they would give, they're going to be generous. I better send a couple people ahead of me to make sure they're ready when I get there, right? So that it's not a tax when I get there, but they give Freely, they give generously and cheerfully. And that's what's happening here. He's sending ahead this letter. He's sending ahead a couple of brothers to remind them of the need in Jerusalem and to prepare an offering, right? And it's in this context that he gives us these two principles. Here's the first principle, sowing and reaping. Sowing and reaping. The first principle is whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Now, Paul's using a farming metaphor there, isn't he? When he talks about sowing and reaping, sowing is another word for planting, and reaping is another word for harvesting. And he's saying, listen, if you're a farmer, and if you only put out a couple of seeds, right, you sow sparingly, 
then guess what? How much crop are you going to get? A sparing crop. But if you're a farmer and you plow the whole field and you put out a lot of seed and you sow generously, what kind of crop can you expect? All things being equal, you can expect a generous crop back. So he's using this metaphor with the Corinthians to teach them something about stewardship, that the person who gives generously will reap generously. And the person who gives sparingly will reap sparingly. Here's the second principle. We put it in one word. It's called freedom. It's called freedom. In some ways, this second principle is what keeps the first principle from being used in a manipulative way. Way too many preachers on TV, way too many preachers in churches using the law of sowing and reaping in a way that manipulates God's people. So here, Paul gives now a second principle. Um, you'll find it just a little bit later there, verse 7. The NIV puts it this way. Each man should give what he has decided in his heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion. Right? He says, now, you should give based upon what you have purposed in your heart, and you should avoid two things. You should avoid reluctance, and you should re avoid being forced into it. Right? So you should avoid um, the kind of internal things that would make you draw back. That's reluctance. And you should avoid the external things that would push you ahead of where you want to be. You should give with freedom as you purpose in your heart. So, you know, Paul writes just a little bit earlier. Look over in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 13 and 14. Because he's speaking against manipulation and he's speaking against coercion, even as he's calling them to give. He writes in verses uh, 13 and 14 of chapter 8, Our desire is not that others might be relieved while you are hard-pressed, but that there might be equality. As a present time, your plenty will supply what they need, so that in turn, their plenty will supply what you need. He sees a kind of reciprocity in this, a kind of sharing and back and forth. That's about freedom, not about force. So these are the two principles. We reap what we sow, and each person should give according to what's in their heart. Right? Now, because generosity is the, is the high call of God, we're motivated to give more aggressively. But because freedom is the second principle, we're freed from legalistic and self-righteous attitudes. We're made genuinely free, and at the same time, we're called to use that freedom and generosity. Do you see that? Now, the freedom described here is, by the way, why we don't commonly use the language of tithing in this church. Nothing wrong with the language. I'll say more about it later. But, but where tithing is imposed as if it were a New Testament law, it simply contradicts the freedom of the, the principle of freedom. And at the same time, it falls short of the principle of radical sacrificial generosity. This is why both preachers and people like to hear teaching about tithing. Let me tell you why. So, someone once said that preachers like to preach tithing because they're afraid that people won't give. And people like sermons on tithing because they don't want to give too much. Works for everybody. 
<laughs> I think that might be one of the reasons on the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the Apostle Paul doesn't reach to a forced rule like tithing. He actually appeals to something higher, generosity, based on something more dynamic, freedom. Those are the two principles here. Now, let me tell you about two people in this text, two people that are described for us. And the first is this, the, pers- the, the type of person who is stingy and reluctant. Stingy and reluctant. There's the stingy giver. They may give, but notice, only under compulsion, only when they're forced to, when their arm is twisted, when the, when the sales pitch is really good. Verse 5 talks about the the one grudgingly given. It's a person who's tight-fisted. You know anybody with a reputation? Don't look around now. Don't look around. But you know anybody with a reputation for being tight? Squeeze the dollar so hard, George Washington started crying. And when that person, that stingy person, when you, when you start talking about giving and generosity, something happens in their heart, right? There's a stiffness. A hardness, a pulling back, a suspicion. They dig their heels into the dirt, they grit their teeth, clench their fists, and they say to themselves, you're not going to take away from me my money. You ain't going to make me give nothing. Not my time, not my gifts, not my attention, you ain't get nothing. Right? It's stingy heart. Right? That's one person in this text. Now here's another person in this text. That's the cheerful, generous giver. This person is happy to give. They delight to do so. Giving brings them joy. You ever met someone who um, has, has maybe given to somebody's need and, and, and they felt like they had the greater blessing in doing the giving? You know, what does is, what is Jesus say? It is more what? Blessed to give than to receive. That word blessed means happy, Right? So that person is experiencing exactly what Jesus said, that in the act of giving, they experienced more blessedness, more happiness than if they had been the one who was receiving. Now notice the reaction of God toward the cheerful, generous giver in verse 7. God loves a cheerful giver. That's how God feels about the happy, generous contributor. He loves them. He delights in them. Their generosity pleases him. God has a special regard for that kind of purpose. Now, what's the difference? What's the difference between these two types of people? What accounts for their hearts being so different when it comes to stewardship and giving? I think two things explain the difference. Number one, at least two things. Number one, the Stingy and grudging giver either forgets that he doesn't own anything or resents that he doesn't own it. Beloved, we are stewards, not owners. We are stewards, not owners. Everything we have is on loan to us. I mean everything. Your, your health's on loan to you, right? Your wealth is on loan to you. Your children are on loan to you. Your spouse 
is on loan to you. And I know some of y'all are like, that rascal paid off. Can I trade him in? No, no, no. You got to keep them. Got to keep them. They on loan, but you got to keep them, right? <laughs> Everything we have is on loan to us because there is only one owner in the universe. It's God. And the stingy person has forgotten that. The stingy person is like, mine. This is mine. This is mine. Oh, it's God's, beloved. It's God's. And, and the stingy person thinks it ought to be used the way I, 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 I want to use it. No, beloved, it is meant to be used the way God, God, God tells us to use it. That's part of what explains the difference between these two hearts. Here's another thing. The stingy and the grudging either forgets or does not believe that God is himself the best giver. That God is himself the best giver. They don't think, the stingy person, that God is generous. They think God is tight-fisted. They made God in their own image. And they say to themselves, I can't trust God. I can't trust God to meet my needs. I can't trust God to give me certain wants. Um, they, they say, listen, if I give too much, then I won't have enough. God won't give back. There are lots of people walking around thinking that God is selfish. But that flies in the face of everything that the Bible tells us about God. God is most generous. He is the best giver. As is sometimes said, you can't beat God giving. You can't beat him giving. Give as much as you can. He will double it and multiply and give even more. Think, think about how completely God is generous to us, how completely generous God is to us. And this text says, now I'm going to show it to you, this text says that God stands in front of your giving as your supplier and behind your giving as your multiplier. He stands in front of your giving as your supplier and behind or after your giving as your multiplier. Look with me in verses 8 and 9. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may, be, you may abound in every good work. Notice that word all. He's able to make all grace abound to you. So that having what? All sufficiency, all that is enough. In what? All things and when? At all times. You may be able to abound in every good work. See how generous God is on the front end? In fact, what do we have that we didn't first receive from God? Nothing. He scatters abroad his gifts to the poor. Even the, listen to me, even the poor possess the generosity of God. That's the front end. Now notice the back end in verses 10 and 11. Look there with me. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. That's the back end. If we are generous, cheerful givers, notice what God does. He, he comes behind and multiplies. He gives us more seed for more sowing. He gives us more bread to supply our food. 
He multiplies our seed. He multiplies our harvest in righteousness. He enriches us in every way so that on every occasion, we will be able to be generous again. He is your supplier on the front end and your multiplier on the back end. That we would be rich in every way. Not just financially, not even primarily financially, but in righteousness and kindness and goodness in the qualities of God himself, which is what all godly people want. Now, God giving before and God giving after destroys now any excuse, any rationale we have for not being generous, cheerful givers. Right? So all of the stingy person's rationales crushed. All of the unbelief that says God won't meet my need, crushed. Any reason we can think of just utterly gets crushed because of who this God is before, during, and after we give. He blows up all of our excuses. He gives back in increased measure. He's generous to us. Now, I once heard a preacher say, and I I have loved it since I heard him say it. Maybe this fits right here as a quote. That God calls us to give, not to get money out of our pockets, but to get idols out of our hearts. And, and we are often, yeah, you can give him, we'll give him those claps. I, you know, I don't know who it is. Next time I say this, I'm going to say it like it was mine. It's getting idols out of our hearts, false gods out of our hearts, so that we can worship the one true and living God. For, for what does Jesus tell us? You can't serve God and what? Mammon. You can't serve God and money. You love the one and hate the other. You, you love your money, you will hate your God. You love your God, you'll give away your money in worship to God, in service to God. So in light of who God is, we should, beloved, repent of any selfish, miserly, cowardly, unbelieving, play-it-safe approaches to stewardship and giving. And we should commit ourselves to using everything God gives us the way God instructs us. Because that God is generous. We know this from the gospel, don't we? Think of Romans 8, 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, along with his son, Give us all things. That's the promise of the gospel. God says, I'm going to give you my son, and with my son, I'm going to give you my kingdom. I'm going to give you all things. The gospel is about God giving to us stuff that we could never earn, stuff that we could never purchase, stuff that we are disqualified for. The gospel is about God giving his son, Jesus Christ, so that he could give us righteousness instead of sin so that he could give us forgiveness instead of judgment, so that he could give us freedom instead of slavery to sin, so that he could give us a kingdom instead of some pitiful, deep hole in hell. The gospel is about God giving us his best, his son, and if he gives us his best, what makes us think he will spare anything lesser? 
And this is why if you're here and you're not a Christian, this is why we're always getting on your nerves telling you to follow Jesus. We want you to have God's best for you, and God's best for you is that you repent of your sins, believe in his son, and walk in the generous generosity of God that comes through faith in his son. That's his best for you. Everything else is stinginess and poverty. This is what I know about a closed fist. You can't put nothing in it. And if your fist is closed before God, he ain't going to put nothing in it. But if your hand, and more importantly, your heart is open to God, he'll fill it with the riches of his kingdom. So if you're here and you're not yet a Christian, we just open your hand and open your heart, open your mind to Christ. He is who he said he is, the son of God who died for your sins and was raised from the grave three days later so that you might have him and with him his kingdom and in his kingdom everlasting life and everlasting joy. If you want to know more about that, we would, we would delight to tell you more about that. Nothing would make us happier than that you should believe in Jesus and follow him. So there are two principles, to reap what you sow and giving is a matter of Christian freedom. And there are two types of people, the stingy and grumpy, and the happy and generous. Now, I want us to notice the two payoffs, the two results. First, what happens to the grumpy, stingy giver? We've seen this already. He reaps sparingly. He's like the steward who buried his one talent. You remember that story that Jesus tells? Instead of investing the money and multiplying it, he buries it because he thinks that the master is, is hard and stingy. And he comes back, when the master comes back and finds that he buried the talent, that's taken away from him and he's punished. Stinginess and grumpiness makes our lives smaller. They eat away, not only at what we could have in Christ, they eat away at what we do have in this life. Like moth. Secondly, what happens to the steward who gives with a cheerful and generous heart? We see them listed in verse 12. First, as we said, the needs get supplied. Second, God gets glorified. Isn't that about as neat a summary as we could have of the Christian life and the Christian church to glorify God and to meet the needs of his people? That's why we exist is what God is doing in the world. When people who are not Christians see the generosity of Christians, they should see such extravagant and radical and happy generosity that this text says they praise God. They go, okay, regular people don't act like that, right? They give away everything. And for people who sometimes don't even like them, aren't, aren't a part of their society, praise be to God. Thanks be to God. Look there in verse 13. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. That's a long, Paul often writes these long run-on sentences. What's he saying? He said, you believe the gospel, and because you believe the gospel, you submitted to God, and because you submitted to God, you gave radically and cheerfully to the needs of others, and when people saw it, they praised God for you. Even pray for you. 
That's the life that we're called to. All of us who name the name of Christ. Now, it might be helpful just to address maybe some persons who are saying here to themselves, that's fine with people who got money, but I ain't got no money, Pastor. I'm broke. Broken in a three-legged dog. Wealthy Christians can give, but not, not me. If that's what you're thinking, I just want you to understand that I understand that in this room, there are people all across the, the financial spectrum, right? In this room, in an American context, there are haves and have-nots, right? But almost every American in a global context is a have, right? That, that some of the poorest people in our neighborhood would actually be wealthy in a lot of countries. Now, again, I understand your cost of living ain't based on them other countries, <laughs> Right, your cost of living is based on this country, and this is why I think that principle of freedom is important. But I'm just trying to encourage you right now to recognize you probably have more wealth than you realize. Probably have more wealth than you realize, and that the obligations of stewardship, in terms of generosity and faith and cheerfulness, well, those those obligations come to you as well. And we know this. We know this because we've seen how Jesus talks about those who give. You remember in the Gospels, when Jesus and the disciples are in the temple, and the Bible says he takes a seat across the temple, looking across the temple at people as they came in and gave. And he watched the rich come in and give. He watched the Pharisees and the Sadducees come in and give. And he saw this one woman, the Bible says a poor woman, who had her last two mites her last two, let's say, pennies in our language, had her last two pennies, and she walked up and put her last two pennies in the offering. And Jesus looked at his boys and said, this woman gave more than all the rest of them because she gave her last. Now, this is, this is again, how, one of those scenes where we realize that Jesus ain't like us. Jesus is better than us, right? Because if, if that woman had come to you and said, listen, I got two mites, I ain't got no food at home. You know, lights need to be paid. What does God want me to do? Does, does, you know, does he want me to give these two mites to the, to the temple, to the church, to the work of the Lord? Or does he want me to take these two mites and pay my rent, pay, buy some bread, right? Now, don't raise your hand. How many of us would say, God probably gave you them two mites so you can pay your rent and buy some bread? That's all you got. God understands. I, I would have said that probably before I read Randy Alcorn's book, Money, Possessions, and Eternity. And he just chin-checked me right there. That ain't what Jesus said. Jesus said she gave more than them all. And, and when I would have said, ah, you know what? Probably take those two mites and pay your rent, buy some bread, you know, do those last many things. See, I would have been walking by sight, not by faith. I would have been remembering that woman's real need without remembering her real God. And I would have given her counsel based upon her physical, practical need, but not keeping in mind the spiritual realities of a God who supplies beforehand and multiplies after. So the best investment she could have made was not in her belly. The best investment she could have made was in her God. To give those two mites because he would turn them into 200 or 2,000 or 20,000. That's how good and generous he is. 
right? So if you're here this morning, you're saying, Pastor, I got a lot of ain't gots, ain't got no money, ain't got no job, ain't got no place to live. Okay, that's real. Not, I, I'm not trying to diminish that. I'm not trying to act like that's small, right? But I hope in the list of ain't gots, I hope you don't say, I ain't got no faith. I ain't got no trust in God. I ain't got no hope. No, no, no. Because if God is in the equation, he's able to supply, as he promises, all of your needs. And you can trust him to do that because he's generous. Because he's generous. And those of us who are rich, the Bible says in 1 Timothy chapter 6, we should not trust our riches, but trust God. And the reason we have riches is to be generous on every occasion. The Bible actually uses the word every, to be generous on every occasion. It's not the occasions we feel like, not the occasions that are convenient. All the occasions that God puts in our place, we should be stewarding his resources in such a way that we're able to be generous in some kind of way on every occasion. I mean, if we're wealthy, we should be most willing to give it all away. Because he's already proven he's given it to us one time. Why is it that it's only the entrepreneurs that we celebrate on television or whatever who tell stories of, I lost it all and started over again and lost it all again and started over again? Why are we not, why are not Christians on those shows? I had it all, gave it all away. God gave it back to me. I gave it all away again. I gave it all away again. No, all the Christian stories are, I didn't have nothing. God gave me a whole lot. Now look at my car. I keep wanting to be balanced with you, right? The Bible also says in 1 Timothy chapter 6 that he gives us all things for our enjoyment. Nothing wrong with a nice car, but you ought to give somebody a ride. Okay, look, that wasn't in the script. Let me give it. So how to put it into practice. How to put it into practice. So we go in right here, in right here. What does all this mean? <laughs> how, do we, how do we put it in practice? Keep the principles in mind. We reap what we sow, and each man is free. We're given according to how we purpose in our hearts, and we want to give with the right heart, cheerfully and generously and sacrificially, not stingy and grudging and all those kinds of things. Um, the question then becomes, how do we use our freedom? Right? Galatians 5 answers that pretty explicitly. We're not to use our freedom as occasion for the flesh or for sin, but to use our freedom to love. And love, in a word, often in the Bible, looks like giving. So John says, don't, don't be talking about you love people and see your brother or sister in need, but not give to them. He says, let, let us love in word and deed, First John says, right? So the key question becomes, let me put it this way, how generous can I be in contributing to God's work in the church without becoming grumpy and sparing? How generous can I be in contributing to God's work in the church without or before my heart becomes grumpy and sparing? How much can I give before tightness kicks in? Right? All of us got a level where we feel it. Right? Now, where's that level for you? You feel that? at a couple dollars, or you feel that at a couple thousand dollars, you, you feel that at a couple hundred thousand dollars, wait, wait, where you feel that, right? And then the question becomes, can I push through that? 
Can I push through that? Let me, let me find the first ceiling and let me break through it. Let me find the next ceiling and let me break through it. In a way that is according to your own freedom and how you purpose in your own heart now. So this ain't, this ain't you got to do what I do or you got to do what your neighbor do. This is you got to do what God tells you to do. Right? And each time you break through the level, you're reminding yourself, God calls me to give, not to get money out of my pocket, but to get idols out of my heart. Right? So find that level. Find that, that stinginess level and ask God for grace to break through so you'll be a, a better and better steward of everything he's giving you. Now, I want to give you an example from my own life, not because I'm, I'm some kind of standard. I don't, we don't preach the beauty. We preach Christ. But um, I am sensitive to the critique that pastors are always after somebody's money or talking about your money and all that good stuff. So I'm going to put my life out there a little bit. Judge me if you want to. God will deal with you. Uh, <laughs> I'll deal with you and put my life out there a little bit just as an example. And um, you can make of it what you will. So I'm going to give you several steps. The first step in this process is pray, pray, pray. Pray, pray, pray. It's amazing how seldom we pray for our giving lives. Right? So if giving is heart work, and it is, then it proceeds from the heart. Then we want to pray fervently for hearts that please God. And that's not a mystery, right? We've seen this in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. God loves a cheerful giver, right? That's, that's who we want to be. And so we want to inspect our hearts. We want to be honest about our hearts. We want to lay our hearts open before God and ask him to show us um, what we need to see to remove what needs to be removed and to place in it what, what needs to be placed there, okay? So we want to do that heart work in prayer. And we want to pray not only for our hearts, but pray also for the right opportunities to give. Pray the Lord makes us aware of the needs that are around us. Pray he gives us, a, as a church family, more strategic opportunities to serve others. Pray for the PSA teams and what the PSA teams represent in terms of an organized effort for us to be generous to our community, right? And pray that all of that will be for his glory. So we want to pray, hallowed be thy name, as we pray about our stewardship and giving. And, and number three, pray also for his blessing in this. That's not wrong to ask God for his blessing. It is wrong to ask him for his blessing so that we can consume it on our own lust, on our own wants. But it's not wrong for him to ask him to bless us if we, he gives us grace to prove ourselves as stewards. What, I mean, what's the Bible tells us? If we are faithful in little, he will make us faithful in much. In, in that the scripture, right? What does God say in Malachi 3.10? We, we read this earlier. Folks in Israel weren't trying to give. They were robbing God of tithes and offerings. And, and, and God says, try me. Try me and see that I'll, I'll open up the windows of heaven and pour you out a blessing you can't contain. Now, he does that with faithful stewards. Or he does that in order to expose our hearts. Right? Success is not always our best friend. Wealth is not always good for us, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Right? So, pray. Number two, plan. Plan. So, we're going to pray about our hearts Number two, we're going to plan where and when to give. So on the where, 
the vast majority of our giving should be to the local church. Bringing my tithes and offerings into the storehouse was the Old Testament way of referring to the temple, right? God had appointed places where his people were to give. And in the New Testament context, Paul says in Romans 16 and other places, each week when you gather, lay aside an offering. Again, an offering was being taken for Jerusalem and other things, but that's the priority. to give to the local church for the work of the ministry, for the things that we talked about in the covenant. Recognize that our budget is reflecting all of those priorities. The care for the needs of the church, the advance of the ministry, the relief of the poor, the spread of the gospel to all nations, that's all in the budget, right? That's, that's how folks go to Zambia and share the gospel. We send short-term teams out. Um, that's how Coffee and Convo pays for coffee. Um, just all kinds of things, great and small, right? So that should be your first priority, but not exclusively. There, there may be other people you know who are on the mission field that you want to support personally, right? It's about generosity, right? Go, go beyond the, the minimum in that sense. And when should we give? Well, we should practice regular giving. Some of us get paid monthly. Some of us get paid weekly or every other week. Whatever's regular for you. Again, it's not based on what other folks are doing. It's, it's what God has given to you providentially. But make it regular. Give regularly. Number three, what? What? What should we give? Well, those Christians in 2 Corinthians 8, 1 to 5, We'll go back and read that sometime this afternoon, perhaps. They held nothing back. They first, the Bible says, gave themselves to the Lord. Then they gave themselves to the apostles and the ministry of the word. Then they gave, the Bible says, beyond their ability. In fact, they begged for the privilege to give. So this was a poor church giving beyond their ability. And Paul is using that as an example to challenge the Corinthians to call the Corinthians, which is a, a wealthier city, into generosity like those folks in Macedonia. And what those folks in Macedonia gave was everything. Again, if we're stewards, we can't think of anything as belonging to us. It all belongs to God. Count it all as his. Okay, so if everything is on the table, then maybe we should have several categories in mind. That includes everything, income, savings, houses and land, stocks, bonuses. Let's run through those real quick. Income. What percentage of my regular income will I give to the work of the Lord? Well, start at 10%. You say, hey, you're not a tithing church. Well, let me ask you this question. Are you going to let an Old Testament Jew under the law who never seen Christ outgive you who know Christ on this side of the cross? The tithing is the training wheels of giving, right? So if you're looking for a place to start, start with the training wheels, put on, put on 10%, and then maybe each year, see if you can give 1% more or 2% more. And, and do that as, as much as the Lord will prosper you and allow you, okay? And oh, by the way, tithing in the Old Testament system, really when you add up all of them, accounted for about a third of their income. So ain't nobody tithing today anyway, okay? So, Start with your income and start with 10% of your gross pay. Yes, gross. Not the net. Not the net. The gross. That belongs to God, too. FICA is not a nickname for Jehovah. That's the government, right? Give to God what he's due. What about your savings, right? So most financial advisors say we should have three to six months of our salaries put aside for emergencies. That's wise planning. 
But on this point, we all have to ask ourselves, how much is enough? How much should we say? For some people, that, that might need to be six months. For other people, it might need to be three months. And we have to ask ourselves the question, and how much do I trust God will provide for me? That's really, that's really relevant on the savings question, right? Because savings is one place where we can discover an unbelieving and hoarding heart. Put your savings on the table. Consider making a, a large one-time offering from um, some or all of your savings. Or forgo some or all of your savings for a season to invest in the, in the work of the kingdom. So your savings belongs to God, too. That's the point. Now, a third thing, real property, houses and land. In Acts 4, 34 and 35, we read this. There were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone as he had need. Sort of thought about our homes might be God's plan for eliminating needs in the church. Our homes are not just our castles, places where we retreat. God forbid our homes should be things we worship instead of God. It may be that that's the way the Lord allows us to save in order that on some day we might be generous in giving to meet the needs of others. And some of us may be rich in houses and lands. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. I wonder if you've considered downsizing. I wonder if you've considered in your will giving property to a church or a missions organization so that it becomes a blessing to the gospel well after your life. Stocks and bonds, same kind of thing. It, it may be that you purpose in your heart to do the same thing with your stocks or bonds or other securities. Many Christians leave stocks in their wills to Christian organizations or to their local churches. You, you can't take it with you, right? You can't take it with you. None of us can. So put that on the table. Put that on the table. When you take stock this afternoon and think about being a steward, don't, don't forget your 401k. Don't forget your stock investments and so on. Don't forget your bonuses and windfalls. So some of us may have jobs where we get a, a bonus, unexpected income this year. It is that unexpected income, right? What should you do with it? You know, should you give it all to the work of God? Should you give part of it? Should you at least tithe it? I don't know. Freedom, right? Freedom. But you got to ask God that question, right? You want to lay that before the Lord in prayer and ask him to guide you in that way. And what about debt? Just a quick word on debt. Yes. <laughs> Let me say one quick thing. Proverbs says, don't go into debt as a cosigner for another, and the borrower is slave to the lender. In general, do everything you can to avoid debt. Purchasing a home is not your best investment. It's your biggest investment, beloved. It's your biggest investment. It's a better investment in the DMV than it is in most places in the country just because of the upward pressure on housing prices, right? But you know what, beloved? You're not poorer or worse off because you don't own a home. And it may be that that's not the best way to steward God's money. And it may be that in this climate, you're taking on more debt than you reasonably should. Be careful about idolizing the American dream and just assume it. 
that something like home ownership is something that God wants for all of us. Maybe he does, maybe he doesn't. But if he does, it's going to be according to his word. It's going to be according to the wisdom of his word. A house is not something that we can normally just drop down cash for, right? So that, that may be a reasonable loan to take. But apart from that, try to do everything with a cash lifestyle. Buy your next car, pay cash for it. Make sure it's two years old, right? Pay cash for it. If your current car runs, keep driving the hoopty, keep driving the whip, right, until you can replace it, right? You see that shirt you like, ask God if you really actually need that shirt when you got a closet with 65 other shirts in that color. And if God says you need 66 shirts, okay, pay cash for it. Don't use your credit card. So put it all on the table. I said that I would talk about how we have done this personally. Let me just give you an example from our history as a family. When we went to the Cayman Islands and uh, began pastoring that church, church is about 30 years old. We got there about um, two years after a Category 5 hurricane had pretty much devastated the island. The island was rebuilding even when we got there. Um, and in the process, two of the insurers that the church used to insure its property went under. So they, they, they were looking at a note that they had on the original property, insurers had gone under, and now they were having to sort of leverage other funds to, to recover from the hurricane. And y'all, I like to sleep. I don't lose sleep over much. That's Christy tell you that. Christy, if a spider get in the room, she can't sleep for two days. He can crawl across the covers. I, I'm going to sleep, right? I was in Cayman Islands one night, and I sprung up, man, in a little bit of a sweat. And I realized I was anxious about the church's financial position because our admin, administrator had come into the um, staff meeting on a Friday and said, y'all, I'm giving you your checks, but don't cash them till Monday. Let's, let's get this next offering on Sunday. And that wasn't the first time she'd done that. And I went to her, and I said, hey, um, sis, don't do that no more. You're discouraging everybody, right? And workers worthy of their wages. We're going to trust God. Um, you know, we had to talk through that thing and, and change that. But, but I sprung up midnight cold sweat. Call a meeting with the elders. Say, hey, look, we got to do something about this because I'm losing sleep and that ain't, that ain't good. Um, so we started this little campaign to retire our debt. It was a brown paper bag campaign. I said, I'm, I'm not a salesman. I don't even like talking about money. Um, but you know what? Here's what we're going to do. We're just going to call people to give, and we're going to try to pay off our debt uh, over a certain period of time. And so, like everybody else, as a family, we, we wanted to contribute. And so we decided, we looked at our budget, just as I advised you guys, we were regularly giving 10% of our income. We said, hey, we, we need to give 12 to 14% of our income this year. And, and, and so we did. We put that, put that on the table. Um, and then we said, look, we ain't got a lot of money, but in the transition from uh, a home, a little town home we own in Virginia to come on staff at a church in D.C. We had sold our property there. We hadn't been there. We'd been there a couple of years, and um, we, we made maybe $30,000, $40,000 from that sale. Now we moved to Cayman. We said, hey, we're just going to give all our savings to this. At that point, we had spent some money. So at that point, it was about $20,000, right? So we put that $20,000 on the table. That was, that was part of it. And um, said, hey, this, this belongs to the Lord. Maybe this is why he has given this to us. Um, and so that's, that's what we did. We said, hey, this, this, this is what we got. This is what we pitch in. 
And the Lord has a way of taking nickels and dimes and dollars and bills and making it way more than what we have. And in about a year and a half, two years' time, we had the great joy of burning our notes and paying off all our debts as a church. Paying all of our church as a debt. So I just want to encourage you, retire your debt as quickly as you can. That's a good stewardship decision. And make sure you counting it all as God's. We're not owners. Um, he has loaned it to us. Uh, and we want to be faithful in that way. Amen? All right, so let's conclude. There are three things that ruin the steward's heart. Legalism, which distorts freedom. Selfishness, which hardens the heart. And worldliness, which draws us away from God. And there are three things that sweeten and deepen the steward's heart. Freedom, which gives purpose. Cheerfulness, which pleases God. And service to others which glorifies God. In my heart, beloved, I've decided two things. That Jesus is my treasure. And I want him to be praised more and more in my stewardship and giving. And number two, I believe and value, I believe in and value what Jesus is doing in this particular church. What he's doing to establish the gospel in this congregation, in this neighborhood, and from here to Lincoln Heights and to Capitol, not Capitol, Congress Heights. And we pray through the Creek Collective to other places as well to establish the gospel in far off places like Zambia and Kenya and other places you'll hear about to meet the needs of the saints here through the benevolence ministry and just through individual generosity. I believe in ARC. And I believe in what God is doing here. And I want my treasures to be where my heart is, in God's kingdom and in his work here. What have you decided in your hearts? What have you decided in your hearts about your stewardship and about your church? Pray about it. Seek the Lord. Follow him in faith. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for this opportunity to think from your word about what pleases you. We thank you that your word tells us that you, a cheerful giver, you're pleased with a cheerful giver. We thank you for what we covenant to do as a church, to, to contribute cheerfully, generously, and regularly to the work of the ministry, to the relief of the poor, to the spread of the gospel, to all nations and the expenses of the church. And Lord, we thank you for the saints who, who give so generously and regularly already. Lord, I praise you that this is a congregation that's never had to have its arm twisted, but that moves in sensitivity to your word and your spirit. And we pray that you do that again. Help us not to live on leftovers, oh Lord, but give us fresh fuel, fresh grace for today to be faithful stewards who advance your gospel. We do pray, get the idols out of our hearts, O oh Lord. And we do pray, do that by making us cheerful givers. For your glory and for our joy, in Jesus' name, amen.